Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining Therapeutics Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen to its members, to sit down, to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Michael Kallenberger, clinical pharmacist at PGY-1 RPD at North Kansas City Hospital, and I'll be your host for today's episode. With me today is Lois Lee and Dave Chatterjee, both clinical pharmacy specialists in infectious diseases at Inova Fairfax Medical Campus. Let's get ready to dive into today's topic, hot-blooded, oral beta-lactams for gram-negative rod bloodstream infections. So obviously, it's a pretty hot topic in the ID world, but why is it important for all us as all pharmacists? Well, I think the role of the pharmacist in general has evolved over time where we're more directly involved in the management of disease states, especially those where drug expertise is needed. So for example, bloodstream infections, which is our focus today, we know that sepsis is a leading cause of mortality worldwide. And in fact, in 2017, the World Health Organization reported 11 million sepsis-related deaths. And in the grand scheme of things, that accounts for about 20% of all deaths globally that year. So it's a pretty significant issue in the healthcare world. And most of these infections were caused by gram-negative organisms with about 76% of community onset sepsis being associated with E. coli and from a urinary source. Whereas with hospital onset sepsis, you can see more of a mix between gram-positives and gram-negatives. In any case, sometimes these cases can be straightforward, but sometimes they can also be quite complicated. And we also know that mortality depends on patients receiving timely antibiotics, especially in the initial phase, and then continuing tailored or effective antibiotic therapy afterwards. And this is really where the pharmacist can make an impact. Great. So definitely the duration of therapy is pretty long with bacteremia, or can be long. But where did the idea of treating bloodstream infections with oral therapy come from? How did this all start? I think it comes from a mix of antibiotic stewardship emphasis and clinical experience, so real-life situations and patients. The general concept of IV to PO interchange is inherently tied to stewardship, as we know. And then the concept of antibiotic stewardship really took off in the last decade when organizations like the CDC and World Health Organization set forth a lot of these principles. In one of the earliest Choosing Wisely campaigns, IDSA and the World Health Organization made a strong recommendation that prescribers, quote, prefer oral formulations of highly bioavailable antimicrobials whenever possible, end quote. Well, this is a very broad statement. And of course, it leads us as clinicians to ask, what situations does this apply to? Does it apply to any infection? Are there specific parameters for this? And then often in clinical practice, we'll have patients who are initially hospitalized for sepsis. They get a few days of IV antibiotics and they look great. And in the absence of other complications, these patients may otherwise be eligible for discharge if not for their 14 days of IV antibiotics. And then there are obvious benefits to using oral agents, as we know. So decreased length of stay, patient convenience is a big one. If I don't have to get a PICC line and get home infusions, I can also minimize my risk of catheter-associated infections or thrombosis and things like that, just to name a few. So I think the idea of using oral agents for bloodstream infections came from those who were faced with these clinical dilemmas and decided to test it out. 
And as the years passed and we had more data to support oral agents in other invasive infections like endocarditis and bone infections. So I think the trials for those are the POET and the Oviva ones, respectively. Those are the landmark trials. More people began to feel comfortable with the idea of using oral agents for bacteremias. As pharmacists, we can assess the patients and guide prescribers on selecting these optimal antibiotics. And this also includes making evidence-based decisions on transitioning a patient to oral therapy when it's appropriate. Right. I definitely agree with Lois. The idea of using oral agents in the treatment of multiple infections is not exactly a novel concept, but, you know, as we're seeing them use in more deep-seated infections, we wanted to explore utilizing these agents, oral agents in gram-negative bloodstream infections as well. So while there's no real great large-scale randomized controlled trials really sufficiently powered to address the role of antimicrobials in the treatment of gram-negative bloodstream infections, there's a lot of data out there that are that are looking at this. And so one of the trials that Yahav and colleagues, where we looked at comparing durations of therapy with you know seven versus 14 days of therapy, a lot of those patients respectively in those groups were transitioned to oral therapy as part of their regimen and really didn't find many different you know, differences in outcomes. And then some of the more key studies, I would say maybe in the last five to seven years that have come out that have looked at utilizing oral therapies. So one of the largest ones to date was by Tama and colleagues in 2019, and they looked at close to 1,500 patients with about half of them being on oral agents with enterobacteriaceae bacteremia, they really found no difference in 30-day mortality or recurrent bacteria among patients who were converted to oral step-down therapy. And there's a number of other studies, Mercuro and colleagues, Kutov and colleagues that we'll reference throughout the podcast that have also looked at utilizing oral agents and subsequently looked at comparing different oral regimens. And for the most part, although there are still conflicting data going on a little bit, we, you know, the really the overall take-home message is that we're not finding difference in patients who are converted to oral therapy. So really sort of hitting home that these oral agents are an option for these types of infections. Well, thanks. You guys said some quite well of our background information there. Is there any particular ideal patients we want to be considering for oral therapy for gram-negative bacteremia or, you know, things to avoid with particular patients? Sure. No, that's a very good question. I would say in considering like when it's appropriate to consider oral therapy for rem-negative bloodstream infections, I would really base it on some of the inclusion-exclusion criteria from some of these landmark studies that have already been mentioned. So based on the inclusion-exclusion criteria for most of the studies that have looked at this, I would say the populations largely consisted of, first and foremost, these were patients with uncomplicated bacteremia. And that's usually patients who have bacteremia due to a urinary source, have Defervesc within 48 to 72 hours of being on antimicrobial therapy have achieved source control. So the majority of these studies, for example, looked at patients with urinary sources. And again, like I said, patients who have defervesc and look clinically stable, aren't on pressors, are not looking critically ill, have afebrile and things of that nature. And also where we have susceptibility data back where we can make a decision to put patients on a definitive therapy, including organ. And I do want to note that there really aren't any hard and fast rules on this, given some degree of variability between the study populations. And that's why some institutions may have institution-specific criteria for when to transition a patient or even if they're eligible for it or not. 
For example, some patients may be required to have five days of IV therapy before switching to PO, but others may allow one to two days as long as the patient is getting better. And at our institution, we actually don't necessarily limit the step-down process to just urinary sources either, which is largely what the trials were based on, like Dr. Chatterjee was mentioning. So while the criteria for ideal candidates for this step-down process may vary, generally the common characteristics will be those mentioned in the studies. And then candidates should definitely be considered for step-down therapy on a case-by-case basis. We know providers commonly use fluoroquinolones for oral therapy, and we're trying to prevent that a lot as antimicrobial sorts of pharmacists. But what other antibiotics can we use for this purpose? So what oral antibiotics that have actually been studied, as, as you've already mentioned, the, the quinolones, I would say in the majority of the five or six studies that have mentioned, the Kutub and colleagues, Mercuro and colleagues, Tama and colleagues, and then the meta-analysis done by Punjabi and colleagues, most of them, if you look at where they looked at using oral regimens for definitive therapy, you did see a good majority of the patients, I'd say almost 50% to two-thirds of the patients were on quinolones. The other agents that were utilized included trimethoprim sulfamethoxol, which is Bactrim, which is also considered a high bioavailability agent. And then maybe about you know, one-third to a quarter to one-third of the patients were actually on beta-lactams, which we're going to transition and, and talk to talk about in just a minute. So I think one of the reasons why we're even discussing this topic today is because there is some clinical controversy around which agents, we know which agents have been studied, but the controversy here is which agents are optimal or the best. So there are some studies earlier on that looked at oral beta-lactams, such as the Kutub study and the Punjabi study, and they actually found that oral beta-lactams were associated with greater chances of infection recurrence compared to the fluoroquinolones. And so that was cause for concern. And that might be one of the reasons why more clinicians just stick with the fluoroquinolones when using it for this purpose. But there have been a lot of other studies that compared these agents head to head and found that there have actually been no differences in the outcomes, leading to suggestions that beta-lactams are non-inferior to fluoroquinolones and trim sulfa, and that they may be reasonable alternatives when you don't have other options. And so the discrepancies in these results confuse some clinicians and it's caused some to believe that we can only use fluoroquinolones. Actually, a lot of people don't even know about using Bactrim for this indication. And so we're discussing it today because it may not necessarily be true according to our data. Are there any reasons why we should still prefer an oral beta-lactam over a fluoroquinolone or Bactrim in some cases, despite the slightly lower bioavailability of these conflicting studies? Yeah, I think so, for sure. I think it's first important to evaluate the validity of some of those earlier studies that found beta-lactams to be inferior. There is a really nice 2019 review article by Mogul and colleagues, and this one explores the different variables to consider when using these oral agents. And it appears that the conflicting results can largely be due to different dosing strategies of the beta-lactams that were used in each study. So to summarize one key point, Mogul and his colleagues recommended specific oral beta-lactam dosing regimens that should be used in order to reach adequate concentrations and treat the bloodstream infection effectively. So if you haven't read this article, I would highly recommend it because it does shed some light on why we might have some conflicting data. So take, for example, the study by Punjabi and colleagues in 2019 that I mentioned earlier. 
You'll recall that I mentioned that they found that oral beta-lactams were associated with higher rates of infection recurrence and treatment failure. But when you look at the beta-lactams dosages that were used, they were much lower than what was being recommended by Mogul et al. To the authors' credit, Punjabi and colleagues actually did state this in their paper. They specifically said that their findings, quote, may simply be the result of inadequate dosing of beta-lactams, end quote. So the question is, would they have seen better outcomes in their oral beta-lactam group if they had used a different dosing schema or more optimal dosing regimen? We don't know. In addition, I think the studies that group oral beta-lactams into low or moderate bioavailability can be misleading. Not all beta-lactams are alike in this sense. And so the idea that oral beta-lactams have lower bioavailability compared to the fluoroquinolones or trimsulfa is not necessarily true. For example, amoxicillin's oral bioavailability is around 90%, so that's good. And cephalexin's is nearly 100%, so that's excellent. These are much higher than some of the so-called highly bioavailable agents like trimsulfa, which sits around 85%, and ciprofloxacin, which is around 70% bioavailability. So there is a common misnomer that I think needs to be clarified. And also being highly bioavailable is just one factor. There are other factors that can determine whether a drug is going to be effective or not for that certain patient, for that certain indication. And so these are all things that we need to consider when thinking about using an oral agent. For these reasons, I don't think we can definitively exclude oral beta-lactams from our toolkit against bloodstream infections. And there are some big concerns with the alternative agents as well. Right. Definitely in addition to the obvious pharmacokinetic and sort of dynamic considerations in comparing the quinolones and trimethoprim sulfa to the beta-lactams. One of the things that's probably really hitting home on why we're often considering oral beta-lactams as a potential treatment options really come down to the safety profile and rates of resistance. So thinking about safety profile first, you know, one of the biggest benefits over quinolones or trim sulfa is going to be a more favorable safety profile with the beta-lactams. First and foremost, as we know, quinolones, they're one of the high-risk medications implicated in C. diff, and there's such a big pull with um, stewardship efforts to reduce the antimicrobials associated with C. diff. This, you know, this is a big reason why we want to avoid quinolones when possible. In addition, you know, there's been a number of FDA warnings that have come out with the quinolones, I would say, over the last five to seven years, including musculoskeletal effects, we all know about QTC prolongation, aortic dissection, the hypoglycemia warnings, you know, and many, many things that are adding to this you know, ever-growing list. Similarly, with trim sulfa, there are hematological effects, electrolyte effects, namely hyperkalemia. So things of that nature that really kind of put the pendulum to say, hey, can we consider oral beta-lactams and taking into consideration the PK properties that Lois was mentioning. In addition, I would say the other reason why we want to consider beta-lactams as a potential treatment option if possible is the increasing rates of resistance against both the aforementioned agents. If you look, I know at ANOVA, where we work, if you look at our antibiogram and considering probably the most common infection that 
is looked at in all the studies, we're thinking about urinary sources account for about 50 to 70% of the uncomplicated bloodstream infections that we're seeing in these studies. And that's similar to what we have seen at ANOVA too, when we did our sort of in-house QI work ourselves, and with E. coli being probably the most common pathogen isolated. So our resistance rates against E. coli for both trim sulfa and the quinolones are well over 20%, sort of you know, coming near 30%. It doesn't make them great options up front. And even when we have definitive culture data, we'll often have resistance to both those classes of medications, making beta-lactams sort of a choice that we have to go to. And we've traditionally gone with MIV, so if we can come up with a dosing scheme and where we can use oral therapy, that you know that would be optimal for those select patients. And I would say last but not least, drug interactions are few and far between with beta-lactams. But then the other thing we have to consider with beta-lactams is it's allergies. So again, it's going to be looking at it, at it from a patient-specific factor, but those are probably summarizing the reasons where a beta-lactam would be considered. I appreciate all the detail with the potential benefits and risk, especially the discussion over the dosing issues with oral beta-lactam, because this is such a wide range and a major consideration with more use. Based on the literature available, which oral beta-lactams specifically are preferred for treating gram-negative factory? Sure. So as Lois mentioned earlier, not all the beta-lactams are alike. And the, the ones that were mainly looked at in the studies, even though they were categorized into, in the Kutop study, and the Punjabi study, even the Tama study, they were categorized as low bioavailability agents. But the, the beta-lactams that were utilized were actually technically not defined as low bioavailability. So I would say in most of the five or six studies that we've summarized, the most common beta-lactams utilized were augmentin and amoxicillin, primarily in some of the earlier studies. And then more recently, there has been use of certain cephalosporins, but there's limited information on the cephalosporin use. So I would say mostly amoxicillin and augmentin were utilized in primary studies. But again, Overall, in selecting the preferred agents, I would I would say, and you know, Lois can weigh in here as well, that amoxicillin and augmentin, given their high bioavailability, would be preferred um, when possible. And then among the cephalosporins, again, looking at bioavailability and probability of obtaining those PKPD targets, I would say cephalexin is most likely, you know, the preferred agent to use when you would utilize the oral beta-lactam. Yeah, I totally agree with Dr. Chatterjee here in the agents, specifically with the oral beta-lactams, the ones that have the most data of evidence. And if we're still sticking to the highly bioavailable option of the three that he had mentioned, I do want to point out, however, some caveats here when considering these agents. And the very first thing that we need to remember is that sensitivity reporting is limited. And the breakpoints for oral cephalexin or amoxicillin susceptibility, these are not approved for bacteremia, right? Because these drugs weren't intended to be used in bacteremia. So in clinical practice, we do use cefazolin sensitivity as a surrogate for cephalexin and ampicillin sensitivity for amoxicillin. But even then, we have to use some caution when interpreting these because the CLSI or FDA breakpoints aren't applicable for this specific indication for these specific drugs. So basically what I'm saying is something like Anaerobacterales, they're labeled as being susceptible to ampicillin as long as the MIC is between 0.5 and 8. 
So if you had a patient with E. coli in their bloodstream and the MIC against ampicillin was eight, this would show up on your report as being sensitive. And a clinician may look at this and be compelled to use amoxicillin as step-down treatment of this bloodstream infection. However, when we go back to the review article that I was mentioning earlier by Mogul and colleagues, the experts in this article actually suggest a maximum MIC of one in order to reach adequate targets when using amoxicillin for these gram-negative rod bacteremias. And for cephalexin, a maximum MIC of four for cefazolin is recommended. So essentially, we need to interpret these susceptibilities with a grain of salt when using an oral beta-lactam to treat the bloodstream infections. And we should be factoring in all of these individual details when making a clinical decision. Now that we know which antibiotics we want to use, we've been hitting at this quite a bit already, but let's talk a little bit more detail about what doses are needed, and then also treatment durations if we're using oral beta-lactam. Sure. So I can start out with the importance of dosing. And as we've already alluded to, and Dr. Lee did a great job of going over the detail in the mobile study, I think some considerations to take into consideration if beta-lactams are used and you know what dosing we should utilize. We go back to some basic pharmacodynamic concepts. We all know that beta-lactams are time-dependent antibiotics, meaning that you know the, the exposure to the antibiotics is where you're really going to get your optimal effectiveness. So utilizing the target PD parameter of time above MIC, about 50% of the dosing interval, and then looking at exposure. So if, we, if we're thinking about the antibiotics in question that we said were preferred, so with amoxicillin, being one of our preferred beta-lactams, the standard dosing in patients with normal renal function would be to achieve that PKPD target of 50% over MIC would be at least a dose of one gram every eight hours. And to put it in perspective, if you think about our standard urinary tract infection dosing, usually in patients with good to normal renal function, we'll utilize a dose of amoxicillin of 500 Q8. So here we're essentially doubling the dose to account for the fact in a bloodstream infection. And similarly for cephalaxin, the dose to achieve that optimal pharmacodynamic parameter would be a dose of one gram every six hours. And similarly, in contrast to maybe UTI dosing, for example, where the dose would be 500 milligrams every eight to six hours, you're talking about a one gram every six hours for a bacteremia. And in terms of duration, I'm sure most of us are familiar with the studies that compared seven versus 14 days of IV antibiotics in gram-negative bacteremias. In these studies, they demonstrated no difference in outcomes between the seven versus 14 days of IV in select patients, such as those who had uncomplicated sepsis or if they were determined to be early survivors. However, when it comes to applying this concept to those who are being transitioned to an oral beta-lactam therapy, it's a trickier area and one in which ongoing studies are definitely warranted. So in the study that Dr. Chatterjee mentioned early on in today's discussion by Yahav and colleagues, the authors did include step-down patients, but only a very small number. So less than 20% of their participants received oral beta-lactam step-down therapy. And as such, it was concluded that longer treatment durations may still be needed in certain cases. So realistically, I can share with you what I've observed to be common practice. And typically we will 
plan for seven days of treatment total with an oral beta-lactam agent as the step down with a follow-up evaluation at that time to determine if we need to extend therapy to 14 days or sometimes even more, which I don't see too often, but that is how we commonly see it. And so we see both the seven and the 14-day courses of oral beta-lactams commonly being prescribed. And I'll just add to that, when we happened to do sort of an internal QI study last year at our institution, looking at if our prescribers were using oral beta-lactams for gram-negative bacteremia, we looked over a three-year period and we, you know, we found a good number of patients with close to 150 to 200 patients that actually received oral beta-lactam therapy. And we looked at similar outcomes to what we, you know, we were looking at at the the studies and our average treatment duration when we looked at it was 14 days. Um, That included both IV and PO therapy. So it's hard to, as Lois mentioned, it's hard to make a a definitive decision. But if we were to be asked what our practice recommendation would be, would be to plan on seven days of treatment and then reassess and follow up. Now that we've gone through all the details, are there any additional information or clinical pearls we need to share to our listeners? Yeah, great question. I always like to include some pearls and nuances to any discussion that can be complicated because, you know, there are always gray areas to these kinds of practices and with emerging evidence. So first, I'd like to reemphasize something I've been mentioning throughout today's discussion, which is that we must consider individual patient factors when determining one, whether we're going to step down to an oral antibiotic for a bloodstream infection, and two, which agent will most likely optimize and be effective in treating the infection. So we might have patients who have altered kinetics or those who have an increased risk of treatment failure because of poor target attainment. So you have obesity being one factor, augmented renal function is one that gets overlooked sometimes, and amongst other things that we should consider, again, before we determine optimal dosing regimens. Um, And the next pearl that I kind of have is don't forget about your heck yes bugs, or more recently, it was referred to as space bugs, in which the use of early generation cephalosporins like cephalexin should generally be avoided because they're known to have inducible resistance. And this is through the AMPC beta-lactamase production. I think that most people know about this by now. So if you recall... Most of the studies evaluating oral beta-lactams for bloodstream infections did not involve these special organisms, right? Mostly it was urinary sources, so E. coli, a little bit of proteus, some Klebsiella, but not really a lot of these special heck yes bugs. So we can't know for sure what the outcome will be in such patients. And so if you do have a patient, let's say, who has hafnia in the blood, I would recommend sticking with the fluoroquinolone or trimsulfa as step-down therapy for these organisms, as long as they are susceptible to the agents, of course. I 100% agree with the pearls that Dr. Lee provided. I have a couple of additional caveats, one major one. So again, I think, you know, as we've talked about, it is very promising that we have oral beta-lactams as an option. You know, there was the idea of optimizing their dosing and things of that nature. But one of the things to consider, and I know there's, and I'm included in this, there's a lot of hits against the quinolones and we like to avoid using them unless we absolutely have to. In this particular setting, I I do think many experts and in situations, as Dr. Lee already mentioned, I think the quinolones or from may may be the 
more optimal option. You know, fluoroquinolones, they still do hold the advantage of being very highly bioavailable when taken orally. Their dosing convenience, I think, for patients would be sort of something that's quite favorable, even from the clinician standpoint, as they're looking to sort of dispo a patient, putting them on a regimen, as we mentioned earlier, if the dose of cephalexin that has to be utilized is one gram every six hours versus a quinolone that could be taken once or maximum twice a day, I think there would be uh, the patient themselves would probably favor a once or twice daily regimen just for compliance sakes. And even in some of the studies that when they looked at and noted the differences in reoccurrence, the meta-analysis by Punjabi and colleagues, they, they alluded to that in their discussion is that they hadn't, they weren't sure if the difference was attributed to maybe not being as compliant with the beta And so I think that's a big consideration is the patient compliance factor. So I appreciate all the detail of going into those additional pearls. One question I have, and obviously this could be a whole other podcast, but is there a certain weight with obesity that you start really questioning or, or thinking about the pros, cons of oral beta-lactam therapy? That's a hard one. <laughs> so, I mean, Dave, you can kind of weigh in on this, no pun intended, <laughs> but there really isn't for that. I was, I think that when I mentioned the obesity part of it, I was thinking more just like in general, because things like ANSET or cefazolin, we will dose it as three grams if a patient is greater than 120 kilos. So that's based on older studies and that's just based on cefazolin. So I don't necessarily want to delve into that just because I don't know that there's actual literature supporting that. Yeah, I think I would share the same sentiment. I mean, I think that's even the case when you're thinking about the comparator agents with the quinolones. I don't think we normally adjust the dose based on weight, even as we currently use them, even from an intravenous parental standpoint. And then same with the beta-lactams. I think, yes, with cefazolin, we up the dose a little bit with our other beta-lactams. We don't really alter the dose that much based on BMI. And I guess there's just not that good data on it as far as I'm aware. No, I mean, I agree. The data is, there's nothing much out there, but obviously that's, uh, as our patients continue to get bigger and larger, it's always going to be a debate, you know, when starting to use this. And yeah, we don't have the data. It's with all drugs, all reality. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question and consideration because we're already sort of on the fence about utilizing oral beta-lactams when they weren't really designed or studied for bacteremia. So now when you're talking about outliers from a PK standpoint, like patients with altered renal function or obesity, then it gets, it gets trickier. So no, I agree. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lee and Dr. Chatterjee for joining us for today's episode of Therapies Thursday. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHB's clinical resources. You can find member exclusive offerings, such as resources centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forms such as the ASHP Section of Clinical Specialist and Scientist Connect Community, where you can always exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutics Thursdays, and join us here every Thursday, where we'll be talking content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast to your favorite provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, 
be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.